My name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here. We'll take a moment now. Antioch kids, we, are, we can dismiss you, and we say together, you are sent. Today we'll be taking a break from our impromptu sermon series through 2 Corinthians and taking a short glance at our friend in the book of Job. We're going to focus on Job's prayers in the midst of of his trials. I know, I know. When we jump into a painful book like Job, it can really bring out some strong responses from within us. Like, well, we're getting right into it, aren't we? Well, I promise today to try to bring it all back at the end and to show that God meets us and meets our prayers in a wonderful way. So what's this morning going to look like? We're going to jump into our passage, but my goal is to really go on a short hike. Do we have any hikers here? Who likes trails and nature? Yes. Love it. I love it. We're going to go on a short hike through the book of Job and then land back on our scripture, our main scripture from this morning. We're going to see some sights and wonders along the way. We're going to see that our true prayer, that true prayers are raw. Our prayers are always heard and we in response should trust God with childlike faith. I know we've sat down and stood up, but I'm going to ask you to stand up again so we can honor the reading of God's word this morning. Hear the word of the Lord in Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Tamanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. This is the word of the Lord. He has spoken to us and say this together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In the middle of seminary, I nearly became an atheist. This may surprise some of you, and it was obviously super surprising to me. I did not intend to go to seminary to really struggle with my faith. But there it was. Seminary should be a moment of your life when you're diving into the complexity of God's word. You should be swimming in the lake of scripture and drinking deeply in the word of life. Your bow ties should be gigantic, (laughs) and your lecterns wide 
as you sit on your desk with your pour-over coffee, as you listen to world-class scholars lecture on the intricacies of systematic theology. Yeah? Right? Well, it was that for me in certain seasons, except without the bow tie. I never like bow ties, but... In other seasons, I deeply struggled with the faith that was given to me as a kid. I couldn't sync up the theology that God was sovereign over every atom of the universe, and yet immense pain and suffering was all around us. If God was in control, was he in control of all the suffering too? Was his hand guiding the malnourished and the poor to their gloom? Was his mind even on the peril of those who sling bombs at one another in war? Those aren't even the tip of the iceberg. What of those who really try to model their lives and follow God? They seem to hurt and suffer in many of such ways, even and sometimes even more. This quote from a skeptical scholar named Robert Ingersoll really hit me during my studies. Nearly all authors of sacred books have given an account of the creation of the universe, the origin of matter, and the destiny of the human race. Nearly all have pointed out the obligation that man should understand that his creator, having placed him on this earth, has allowed him to live and suffer. And that their scriptures taught that nothing short of the most abject worship could possibly compensate God for his trouble and labor suffered and done for the good of man. They've nearly all, all the religions, insisted that we should thank God for all that is good in life, but have not informed us as to whom we should hold responsible for the evils in this world. Ouch. That hurts to read and hit me hard in a dark spot. And if you're in a dark spot, something like that may hit you hard too. Well, let's take a look at our friend Job for a moment. His prayers didn't sound much different than this cynical guy at times. All right, before anybody like gets on a hike, you got to get a map of the trail and you got to, you know, get all your gear together, get your tent, get your water, get your snacks. So that's what we're going to do first. We're going to suit up, stop by the ranger station. They've got good coffee. It's in the back. Hang out and let's get going. We don't know who, uh, we have no clue who wrote Job or even where the land of Uz is. Job isn't an Israelite, and neither are his friends. The story begins with a scene in the courtroom of God where the accuser, the Satan, or Satan, struts up to God and says, Hey there, your servant Job, yeah, you know the one you're like super proud of? Yeah, he's really only doing it for himself. I bet if you strip him of everything, he would turn his back to you. God takes a breath, and this is, youth, this is for you in the room here. He takes a breath rolls his eyes and says, bet. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't have had that joke in there. (laughs) Then Job is hit with gigantic events of suffering, pain, disease, the loss of his family and wealth. We enter into into some dense Hebrew poetry for the large middle chapters of the book that are mostly a dialogue between Job's friends and his wife. His friends actually begin their visit the right way. They show up when he's hurting at the beginning of the story, and they don't start talking to him. They don't have all the answers. They actually show up and are quiet. A side note here, sometimes you don't have to know what to say when people are hurting. You can just show up and sit there with them and be there with them in the middle of their hurt. But soon thereafter, they sour their presence 
a bad, like a bad house guest who won't stop talking and talking and talking. They keep going and going and going. They all encourage him to either repent for what he's done wrong, or as his wife famously said, curse God and die. Throughout the book, Job maintains he really didn't do anything wrong. He was innocent. And the amount of suffering that had been given to him wasn't proportionate to what should have been given him if his friends were correct. You see, they believed that God was lovingly just and treated everyone as if they deserved what they got. Job, in his poetic defense, says, yeah, if that were true, then I really would not be suffering like this at all. I promise I'm innocent. Another friend named Elihu, he's, he's a little bit more nuanced. He shows up right before we get to our passage. He walks up and warns Job about the complexity of the world and to be careful to question God. We also notice that throughout the speeches of the book, Job calls upon God for answers. He indeed demands them from God several times. We see him in chapter 16, verses 18 through 21. O oh, earth, cover not my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, here it is, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. Job is like yelling out. My friends scorn me. My eyes pours out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. And then we see in chapter 31, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Then God essentially grabs Job's soul and wrings it out with the complexity of the world and the universe that God oversees. He shows him that nothing is as simple as he thinks it is and invites Job to trust him. All right, grab your walking staffs. Let's hop on the trail. Here we go. Our first stop are two little valleys you can view on the right. True prayer is heard and loved by God. Job's prayers were raw, man. Our first point here that we notice that Job's prayers are raw. We've seen how Job's and his friends responded throughout the book. We basically hop on a roller coaster of emotions with Job as the accuser, Satan, brings about immense suffering to him. God does set some limits, but we see Job reach his own limits. Job 3, why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? Job 7, if I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of humanity? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? In Job 9, it's all the same. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. Now, forgive us for the scripture uh, differences there. Job 23, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might even come to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. We don't have to belabor this, but it's important to note that we see Job over and over and over and over and over calling out to God after having lost it all. He was truly brought to the end of himself and made multiple pleas for God to come and answer him. Job 13, let me have silence and I will speak and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. 
this will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. For who is there to contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Only grant me two things. Then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand from me and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call and I will answer or let me speak and you reply to me. Is there anybody here? who has felt like that before. Lord, if you hit me hard again, I'm not sure I can keep following you. Is there anybody here who sat up after a night of suffering and in the morning thought, if I've got to go through that again, I may turn my back on you. Anybody here who has ever said, if I were to take on one more thing, it would be the death of me. Let yourself be encouraged right now. You are in absolutely good company in the book of Job. As we go on, our next point is, our prayers are raw, man. Young disciples and youth, the words in our outline here are raw and real. Okay, I'm going to do something a little bit risky here. Be mindful of youth in the room. What are some real and raw prayers that you have prayed in your life? Don't, don't be afraid. Don't be shy. Just say them out. What are some of the raw prayers? Maybe a sentence. Why? I am so over this. Me too. Where's your love, God? Here's one from my life. It was a cold and rainy evening in Louisville of the fall of 2016, Crystal and I, Crystal had gone home to help put Caroline, our oldest daughter, to bed, but there she is, (laughs) but I was sitting on the seventh floor of the hospital downtown with our one-year-old daughter who was fighting to live each day. I looked outside at Interstate 65 and I saw the hustle and bustle of all the cars leaving from work and heading home. Folks probably jam into their favorite album, listening to their favorite podcast or audiobook. They're just looking forward to getting home to their family or their friends. Meanwhile, I glanced to my right and saw my daughter hooked up to a web of cable and cords, getting yet another chemotherapy treatment. I'll never forget my cry that night, and it said something like this. Wherever those people are going, it doesn't matter. It's better than here. A good way to put it when you're watching your child suffer is like being forced into a movie theater, strapped into your seat, eyelids glued open, and being forced to watch a horror movie on repeat over and over and over. In that hospital, our prayers were raw. They physically hurt as they left our souls, and we petitioned God to set us free and to heal our daughter. Thank you for sharing some of those raw prayers that you have had. Have you felt like that before in a story similar to mine, where the weight of the hurt inside you was nearly too much to bear? Where your entire self has your hands up in the air asking, why? Why? 
God. Take heart, friends. God hears you when your prayers are raw. So here's a quick descent. We've passed a couple valleys. We're on a descent on the trail now. You can take a breather, maybe. Take a sip and sit with your thoughts. Our prayers are raw. Job's prayers are raw. But we've got to be careful when we pray. Young, young disciples and youth here, the words in our outline are, be careful. I remember sitting in, a small, in our small town church with the preacher every Sunday saying, the way to get to heaven was merely just by praying the sinner's prayer. Bada bing, bada boom, you have made it into heaven if you just say that one prayer. The guy would use it to comfort other families too, that like of someone who lived like a horrible lifestyle for 50 or 60 years of their life, but when they were nine and a half years old, they prayed the sinner's prayer that one time in service, and he would use it to comfort their friends if they passed away, or their family if they passed away. Don't you worry. Joe Schmo, he's good. Don't you worry. A one-time prayer ordinarily doesn't help. This way of religious thinking is really the same thing as placing a bet at the table with your soul. You're essentially covering your bases by merely saying the words of a prayer. If we were to approach religion this way, or Christianity for that matter, we might as well say lovely prayers from every religion, just so we could cover our bases. Just so we, all that to say, if we approach God like Job's friends do throughout the book, we've got the wrong goal in mind. Another point about being careful Praying for the sake of simply getting your life together ordinarily does not help you. We see in Job 22, agree, this is one of Job's friends, agree with God, this is Eliphaz, and be at peace. Then good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth. Lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you'll be built up. If you remove injustice from your tents, If you lay gold in the dust and gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you'll delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You'll make your prayer to him and he'll hear you and will pay your vows. You will decide on a matter and boom, it'll be established for you and light will shine on your ways. For when they're humbled, you say it's because of pride, but he saves the lowly. He delivers even the one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. Here's my paraphrase of that. I was at home over and over. I was trying to do a Jordan Peterson impression, but I cannot do it. But I was going to try, but I didn't. So I'm not, I'm not going to bless you with that this morning. But here's my paraphrase of what Eliphaz says. It's like, well, man, get your act together. Get your house in order. Then whatever you imagine is God will finally hear you. Get the bloody mess out of your life, and then and only then God will give you exactly what you ask for. Eliphaz insists that when we get our outward act together, you'd better make sure you're polished up and look the part before God, and then he'll finally answer your prayers. That sounds pretty good. I mean, reading that, it's like, yeah, I mean, that's not that bad. It isn't even inherently bad philosophy to have apart from God. If the rest of the world really thought like that, we actually might have a better world to live in. The problem with it is that God doesn't act like this. It doesn't go far enough. God doesn't act like this. He never has. He has consistently surprised us with his grace when we don't deserve it at all. 
Rather, God looks at our hearts. He embraces the widow, the weak, the tax collector, the sick, who cry out from the heart, God, I really, really don't have it all together. Have mercy on me. Okay, so be careful. How should we pray? What do we see in the book of Job? What does it point us to? Well, something interesting. Job's prayers don't just end with getting your act together. They begin and end with God. Hear that again. Job's prayers begin and end with God. The Bible calls this term lament. One contrast we can make between the prayers of Job's friends and the prayers of Job is realizing whose presence we are in when we pray. Never once do we see the entire book of Job, Job doubting God's existence or the faith that has been given to Job. He always believes God is there. That's something interesting to me. Job never doubts that God is with him. Job knows he's with him. He's just doubting God's goodness, which is interesting. Nope, Job actually continually circles back, even though he's mad as a hornet. These sorts of prayers are directed toward God. It's actually a conversation with him. I'm going to read just a little bit of Job 19. This is a beautiful lament. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? Notice how he starts off with God. God, how long will you torment me? Ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it's true that I have erred, my error remains within me. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, friends, like God, pursue me? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, for whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. This is in the middle of the book. God hasn't even answered Job or his friends. Yet, in the middle of his prayers, they're starting and ending with God. Job feels like God tore him to shreds. He begs his friends to stop pursuing him. He feels like his life is desolate. But this nugget of wonder, he knows his Redeemer lives. Even in the pain, even in the heartache, he insists that God will reign and his Redeemer will have the last word. Here's the takeaway. Be careful when you pray. It should begin and end with faith in God. keep on trucking. Our prayers are always heard. Young disciples and youth, the word in our outline here is kindly. God kindly answers our prayers. God kindly answers. There's a classic way of thinking about prayer. I heard it when I was a kid. It goes something like this. God always answers your prayers. It's either a yes, it's either a no, or do you guys know what the middle answer is? Wait. Exactly. You guys know it. You guys, you guys heard it too. Yeah, good. Yes, no, and wait. 
I think it's a pretty good way of looking at prayer. It's another way, like our, my youth pastor used to say something like, you're either going into the storm, you're either in the middle of the storm, or you're coming out of the storm. One or the other. It's, all, it's one of those three options. <laughs> to answer Job's demand for God to show up throughout the book, God steps up to the dock of the courtroom, and he initiates something incredible. You see, those three, those three answers are simple of how God can answer prayer, but sometimes they don't do justice to the middle, when we're in the middle of a storm. Yes, no, and wait. Sometimes it feels just like a blah answer. You're going to tell me to just wait around? You're going to tell me God answered no? Well, I'm going to show you how God kindly answered Job. He shows up in the courtroom and initiates something absolutely wonderful. He actually gives the longest direct speech of himself that we see in the entire Bible. Pretty amazing. That means we should kind of pay attention to what he says. He shows up in a whirlwind. We find this in chapters 38 through 41. This whirlwind envelops Job, and he takes him on a virtual tour of the entire cosmos. He's proud of the incredible beasts that he created. He slams Job over and over and over again and asks him if he was even around when he hung the planets or if he had enough wisdom to count the clouds. He asks Job question after question. We see it in 38. Then the Lord, then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind and he said, who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you've got it. Here's one of my favorites in 38 uh, verses 19. Where's the road to the home of light? He's talking about light, like particles of light. Do you know where the darkness lives so you can lead it back to its border? Are you familiar with the path to its home? Don't you know you were already born? You've lived so long. <laughs> the emphasis here is, is mine. The Bible doesn't <laughs> say that. I, but I can just imagine God, really. He's got a sense of humor, just to ask him. You've lived, you've been here for so long, Job. Surely you can tell me. Imagine Job's face for a moment as he hears these words. I imagine something like, you know. <laughs> After we heard Job's prayers for a minute, uh, when, I, when I just talked about those, when you and I pray, our hearts resonate with him. Our hearts cry is to have answers that make sense to us. For X plus X to equal 2X. We want God to look at our financial situation, see the need, and immediately resolve it. Here's the money. We want God to see our inner scars and heal them in the blink of an eye. This isn't at all unlike Job's friend's understanding of the world. Thing is, though, that isn't how the God of the Bible operates. He has the entire scope of the cosmos guided by his hands. He sees the beginning of time, and he sees the end of time. I love this picture. It's one of the most surreal pictures that we have available to us as mankind. This is an image of, it looks like, some of you in the back, um, it looks just like a, a bluish black screen with a ray of light and in the middle of this ray of light is a tiny little star 
This is called the pale blue dot picture. It's an image of the Voyager, that the Voyager spacecraft took on its journey exiting our solar system. It looked back to Earth and snapped a bunch of pictures. And that right there is Earth. This is probably not unlike some of the things that God showed Job in the whirlwind as he took him around the universe. It puts into perspective how truly tiny we are compared to the rest of God's creation. So where does this leave Job? God's answers are incredible, but they don't directly answer Job about his suffering. So what is really the point of God's speech? I wager that it's God's kindness. God didn't owe Job an explanation. He didn't owe Job a breakdown of the aerodynamics of eagle's wings, or a quick scuba dive to the bottom of the ocean, or a lesson on wave management with the moon. But it was kind of God to give it to him. God didn't have to step up before Job, but he kindly showed up. God didn't have to hold the reins of Satan hand, Satan's hand while Job suffered, but God kindly held firm. God didn't have to descend in a whirlwind, but there he was before Job. How kind of him, how kind of our God to show up over and over again, even if it isn't the way that we expect. How has God kindly answered prayer in your own life? After the journey comes to a close, Job is then awestruck and brought to his knees. All right, we've trucked along. We've reached close to the end of our hike, friends. So put down your walking staff for a second, take a sip of coffee, and enjoy the view. We're going back to chapter 42, the text that brought us here and brought me to the point to really consider what prayer looks like. Young disciples, the word in our outline here is childlike. We've seen how our prayers can be raw and real before him. We've seen how God kindly answers our prayers. Now I'd like to show you how all this wraps up by looking to Jesus, the one who summarily took on humanity and exercised prayer perfectly as he walked this world. Let's look back to chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This moment can't be overstated. It's one of the most powerful moments in the book. Job finally demonstrates a childlike trust in God. And that's what was on my mind when I read this. Job is finally looking at him like a father. He finally discovers with childlike faith that he sees the Lord is with him after all this time. For his whole life, he merely heard what the Lord was up to, but now he sees the Lord for what he truly is, a kind father 
who answers his prayers. In in fact, Christ has a prayer that seemingly goes unanswered. I'm going to leave you with it. I'm not going to answer it yet, but I'm going to let it sit with you for a minute. Just as Job cried out to God throughout the book with no apparent answer for a long time, Christ called out to God on the cross. In Matthew 27, we read, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like Job, Christ is calling out to God the Father. It's as if he's a child who is lost in the wilderness, and every way and everywhere he looks is only darkness. His dad was walking with him day and night throughout his years, and now all he hears and feels is silence. Verse 7 of 42 says, After the Lord has spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken me what is right. Notice here, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told him. And the Lord accepted his prayer, Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. This is magnificent here. Job's prayers that we noticed on our journey were answered and heard throughout the entire book. We see that here in verse 7. My anger burns against you and against your true friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. All along, these were prayers. All along, Job crying out. God is saying to it right here, saying to him right here in this glorious, magnificent moment, I heard Job through it all. Every speech, every cry, every tear was heard and loved by God. God isn't merely restoring Job's Job's fortune because of his great faith, though. Remember, be careful when you pray. Job never expected to get all of his stuff back. Job was given this as a gift. And I think it's a grave error when we point out over and over the great fortune that was restored to Job. Because that's not the point of the book of Job. He didn't deserve any of that stuff. And I think Job recognizes that he didn't deserve any of that stuff. That was simply a gift. He had his mind on the finish line of trusting in God himself and God's wisdom. So be careful when you read that there. What do Job, so what do Job and Christ have in common? I think the best way to put it is that God is asking Job and asking us to trust in him. Trust that in the silence, God still hears you. Trust that within due time, God kindly responds to us. Trust that the Father's will is for our good and his glory. 
I'd like to conclude today with a story of my own whirlwind encounter with God. It is true that I nearly became an atheist in the middle of seminary, but it's also true that those deep moments of struggling deeply with the faith that I had came to an end with God kindly showing up in a surprising way. I'm married to one of, if not maybe the most, honest person that I know on this planet. She tells me over and over. People ask me all the time, how, how, how did service go? How, how, did, uh, how did the you know, leading songs go and stuff? And I was like, well, if, if it was bad, I think my wife would tell me because she, she just always tells me. So God showed up in a whirlwind to me one day, sitting on the porch of our home with my wife, looking at me dead in the eye and saying to me, Something along the lines of, hey, Aaron, guess what? You're never going to have it fit all together. All of your battles with faith are never going to fit together neatly. Nobody has it all together. That moment was a whirlwind. My pride and my doubts of the suffering in the world came crashing down. Like, that's... it. I can't put into words how deeply that meant to me because so many people that struggle with battling faith want to have things fit nicely together in their worldview. They want to have suffering say that, oh, it's just a process of natural selection. It's what we would, it's what we would expect in the world without God. Suffering, right? Fits so neatly with their worldview. But it doesn't work out like that. It doesn't fit all together. There's something in us that cries out when we pray. We want more. So my pride came crashing down. The pretty exterior of doubting your faith fell away to reveal the horror of what a godless worldview really looked like to me. I didn't have all the answers right then, but by God's grace, I wasn't left alone. It was a call for me to lift up my head from the muck and mire of the world and turn my eyes to God yet again. But it was also reassuring to me to look back at all the times I yelled at God and raised my fist at him. And in that moment, he said, I did hear you, and I was with you. So by God's grace, I wasn't left there. It's not only with me, or with Job, or with you, but we see God's best and most glorious answer he gives to Christ as he prayed on the cross. What was that answer? God, in his kindness, poured the wrath of the sins of the world on him. God, in his kindness, had you on his mind as Christ breathed his last. Eliphaz and Bildad and his other friends had to make a sacrifice, but this one meant it for all. God, in his kindness, didn't stay in the tomb God, in his kindness, raised his son from the dead. And now, God, in his kindness, asks you to turn your eyes to him. I'd like to end with reading a poem written by John Piper on the book of Job. As you reflect on what prayer looks like in your life. Behold the mercy of our king, who takes from death its bitter sting. And by his blood, and often ours, brings triumph out of hostile powers. 
and paints with crimson earth and soul until the bloody work is whole. What we have lost, God will restore that and himself forevermore. When he's finished with his art, which is the quiet worship of our heart, when God creates a humble hush and makes Leviathan his brush, it won't be long before the rod becomes the tender kiss of God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he blessed it and he sat with his disciples and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And later on, he took a cup of wine and after blessing it, he poured it out to his disciples. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. And I'm giving you a new covenant marked by the shedding of my blood. Each time you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, we're proclaiming his return. And we're living in the new covenant. Praise the Lord. Today we are announcing that the Lord in his kindness answers the prayers of his people. And gives them life everlasting. Amen? Amen. If you are a baptized believer this morning, we invite you to the table. We invite you to take the bread of blessing, the cup of the new covenant, and remember his great work for us. Our tradition here is to come forward, you know, take a piece of bread off and dip it in the juice. If you're not a follower of Christ, this sacred symbol is not for you. But rather than taking communion, we encourage you to take Christ himself. He's, his invitation is for you to trust in him with your prayers today. Trust in his work. Trust in the answered prayer that Christ had for you. There will be pastors and people that are gifted, that would love, other people that are gifted that would love to pray for you in the back. Anyone who has any need, feel free to come and respond. Let's pray. Father, in our suffering and in the hurt that we see in this world, our prayers can come out raw. Our souls can be in anguish with things that the world has brought upon us. Our financial situation may be difficult. Our family life may be broken. The world is without hope. Our prayers sometimes feel like they go unheard. But we see, Father, through the glorious book of Job, that you hear us and you answer us. And that you sent your Son to identify with us, to take on flesh, to feel everything that we felt, even moments when it felt like we weren't heard. So, Father, we rejoice knowing that the gospel is true, that your son is alive, that he has risen from the grave, and we respond with joy now. Thank you for hearing us. In your name we pray. Amen.